I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So in these two books, the Apostle Paul has instructed Timothy so that this young protege of his would be able to be effective in the ministry of his calling. He has, uh, he has addressed Timothy personally as a man and professionally, if you want to use that term, in his ministry. Given him help for who Timothy is as a man and given him help for, for who Timothy is as a, as a servant leader uh, in the church of Ephesus. Um, in a very real sense, and I want to just kind of back up a little bit, but in a very real sense, if you back up to verse 5, you will find that in verse 5, there's a kind of a, uh, maybe a, a summary of everything that Paul has said in these two books. But you, be sober in all things, endure, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words, in this verse, he says, Number one, Timothy, you need to be right in your own mind. This is him addressing Timothy earlier. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, right? It's Paul addressing Timothy the man, saying, Timothy, you've got to be right. You've got to be right. Your heart has to be right. Your mind has to be right. You have to be right, Timothy. You have to be well. So he addresses Timothy in this way. He says to him also, and yes, I'm skipping a line. I'll come back to it. He says to him also, do the work of an evangelist. That is, there are things in your ministry that you will need to engage yourself in that aren't your primary strengths, Timothy. Don't neglect them. Don't neglect them. That's part of what you have to do. It's part of what God has called you to do. And the reality is that none of us are sufficient in every area. We all have areas where we lack expertise, where we lack ability, and, and if I'm perfectly honest, I would say that, that we not only lack expertise, we, we lack interest. We lack interest. We lack desire. There are parts of ministry that I'm not inclined to. I will never probably be as good at them as some others or make them primary because they're not strengths, but sometimes they must be done. They must be done, right? Do the work of an evangelist. In Timothy's case, it was evangelism was one example. He then says to him, um, fulfill your ministry. This is that, that, Timothy, you've been called to serve the saints, minister to the saints. This pastoral ministry that you've been called to, do that work well, minister to the saints, serve God's people well. And throughout these, this, these two books, he's given him instructions on how that works, how to establish the church, how to set up the church, what to teach, what to ignore, what to correct. All of those things, Timothy uh, has been instructed by the Apostle Paul. But the second line there in that verse is to say to Timothy, and oh yes, Timothy, don't fear suffering for the Lord. Don't fear suffering for the Lord. Endure hardship. Endure hardship. It's a recurring theme in these books that hardship is part of the deal. It's part of the deal. 
Hardship is part of the deal. We don't skate through the Christian life with no opposition. We don't skate through the Christian life with no difficulty. Paul encourages Timothy to endure the hardship that was particular to him in his life. After saying that, Paul then recognizes in verse 6 that his own life and ministry are coming to an end. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I'm coming to the end of mine, Timothy. I've instructed you. I've done what I could to set you up for yours. Mine's about over. I'm coming to the end of mine. What's interesting about it is that the Apostle Paul is describing himself in the hour of his death much the same way he described himself as uh, the man who had lived his life of ministry. That is, he's a drink offering. He's being poured out in service to the Lord. That's what he does. All his life long, he had poured himself out in service to the Lord by serving God's people. He had poured himself out. Could I just say it this way? The best way to prepare yourself for death is to live life. That is, the way you live life is the way you'll approach death. Okay? And it's an amazing thing how when life is lived well for the Lord, death can be died well for the Lord as well. Practice well in life. Practice well in life. Prepare well in life. Our approach to this passage that we've just read uh, from verse 7 through verse 18 centered on three words. We've had three key words that we have focused on. There's other things we could have looked at from this passage. But the things we've focused on are, first of all, the reality of opposition. Uh, it's a word that is used in, uh, in, in verse 15. When Paul is talking about Alexander, he has opposed me. He has opposed me. The reality of opposition Opposition is a part of life. That's what we focused on two weeks ago. Last week, we focused on the second word, and that was abandonment. All have forsaken me. We focused on abandonment, and in fact, from there, we kind of transitioned, and we said, it's a fine word to use, abandonment, but the result of abandonment is aloneness. And we talked about the problem of aloneness in, in life, and how many people are alone in life. Uh, and, and, and we looked at what it means to, to, be, uh, to be engaged in the ministry of presence. That, that often, you don't have to have an answer to give. You just have to be willing to be there. Just be willing to be there. Be present, right? That, that the ministry of presence is a great answer to the, to the pain of aloneness. So this week, we're closing out this passage and our study on these two books in uh, what it means to be the church with, with one final word from verse 18. In verse 18, the word I want to focus on is the word deliver or deliverance. Deliverance. This idea of being delivered. In the context of verse 18, the word deliver, uh, being delivered, seems to be uh, remarkably misplaced. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It seems to be remarkably misplaced. Or, it's just a downright error. Okay? So here's what I mean by that. Um, if we're honest about how we look at things, what we read is, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. That's what Paul write, uh, wrote. Why is it so misplaced? Why does it sound like such an error? Well, because if our timeline of Paul's life is correct, and I think it is, this is the last book that Paul ever wrote. He was, within a very short time after writing these words, he was beheaded as a martyr. And what he says is, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. And no sooner does he, said it, does he say it than he gets beheaded. And you say to yourself, well, that didn't work out so well. Well, that's not the deliverance that 
we were all thinking about and praying for. I mean, that's not the deliverance that I pray for. I don't know about you. But when I pray to be delivered from something, I'm not asking to be delivered from my head. Right? I don't think I'm the only one. That's not what we think about when we think about being delivered. It's a, it's a problem, it's a problem in a sense, that we all struggle with. That you want to say to Paul something like, really, Paul? You're going to be delivered from every evil attack? That's the, the way another version translated, translates it. The, king, the, the uh, New American Standard is every evil deed. Really? You're going to be delivered from every evil deed? You're going to be delivered from every evil attack? Well, what kind of deliverance is beheading? What kind of deliverance is that? And, and this is just a fact that you and I struggle with in life. Um, this, is a, this is a passion of mine. This is a passion of mine. This is something that I believe is desperately needed in our day. It's why you hear me say over and over again that I, that I can't stand bumper sticker theology. It's why you hear me say there are certain theologies that I have very, to- very little tolerance for. Because, because I think it's a cruel thing to offer people promises in life that are not backed up by Scripture. And I don't care how much Scripture people quote to try to prove it. It's misquoted Scripture. It's taken out of context. It's poorly applied. My brothers and sisters, I just, I believe there's a certain comfort in being real. Do you know what I mean? It's painful to try to talk yourself into things that aren't true. Acceptance is a profound gift. It's a profound gift. You ever tried to kick against your circumstances, try to deny your circumstances, try to, try to pretend like they weren't what they were, or, or if you just try a little harder, you can change them when you can't? My brothers and sisters, I'm not talking about living a passive life and just taking whatever comes, but I will tell you this. Sometimes you better learn the grace of acceptance. You better learn the grace of acceptance. Because those who don't learn the grace of acceptance torment not only themselves, but they often torment the people around them also. They torture the people around them with expectations that aren't real. We have to be be honest about the Christian life. Paul writes, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. And within weeks, he gets beheaded. We have to do something with this. We have to deal with this, and we have to deal with this honestly. What does this mean? Well, I want to share with you just a few, uh, a few thoughts this morning. What kind of deliverance can we think about, can we expect as believers? What kind of, of deliverance can we expect as believers? Let's start with this. Let's consider for a moment the reality of life. The reality of life. So, the first thing to note is that the Bible is the ultimate book of reality. This is, we don't have time to address the things that, I, that, I, uh, that I'm going to bring up right now. But there are things that are dealt with in Scripture that are, frankly, inconvenient. Inconvenient. Um, for example, the fact that God provided instructions for how to treat your slaves instead of just banishing the institution of slavery. It's inconvenient. I wish it wasn't that way if it was me, right? Uh, We have to grapple with these things. What's interesting about it is that that God is unashamed, that that the Bible was was not written to be a book that ignores the reality of human experience. It deals with it, and it deals with it honestly in all of its contexts. In all of its contexts. It deals with things with profound and sometimes rather shocking reality. Sometimes rather shocking. I love the fact that it doesn't hide the flaws of its heroes. That it, it, it's honest about the fact that, that men and women of God are still men and women. 
and they fail and they struggle and that God can call a man who's an adulterer and a murderer a man after his own heart. I love that. Right? Uh, it's it's, it's uh, the, 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 sometimes the flaw on our side is bumper sticker theology. The flaw on the other side is to look at Christianity from the outside in and say, ah, it's full of contradictions. That's just, that's, that's just an unstudied position. That's just looking at two things on the surface and saying those things don't fit together without taking the time and making the effort to find out how they fit together. Okay? The fact of the matter is, there are men who have sinned great sins in their lives who were men after God's own heart. It's not right. It's not what it should be. But it's a fact of life. It's a reality. Even men after God's own heart fail. It doesn't hide the flaws and the sins of, his hero, of its heroes. It also doesn't make false, it doesn't make uh, um, um, uh, false promises. It doesn't hold out false promises to us. Now there's a reason why I love the fact that Scripture doesn't hold out false promises to us. And that is because of this one reason. When it does make a promise, no matter how outrageous it sounds, it can be relied upon to be true. If God doesn't make false promises, then the ones he does make can be counted on. Right? They can be counted on. He doesn't make any false promises. I find this fascinating. For example, in the passage that we're, that we're dealing with right here, if you look down a few verses later at verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes, Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. I left him there sick. <laughs> now, if you stop and think about how many people the Apostle Paul was used by God to bring healing to in his lifetime, that in fact there was a period of time in Paul's life when he was sending out objects that he had touched and they were bringing healing to people. The fact that Paul says, just plainly, openly, here's a brother that didn't get healed in my presence. I left him there, and I left him there sick. It's a fact. We have to deal with this. We have to deal with the fact that not everything goes the way we would like it to go. In fact, Rather than promising Timothy great wealth for his service to the Lord, what he says is, there is a kind of teacher that teaches for his own gain, Timothy. Stay away from these kinds of people. Get away from them. 1 Timothy 6, Paul warns him about what the love of money does and what the doctrine is that says that godliness equals gain. And Paul warns Timothy against this kind of false idea that doesn't belong in the church. And he says instead, Timothy, godliness with contentment is the great gain. Right? And, and he speaks to Timothy this way. No false promises. He then goes beyond that and says, Timothy, those who fall in love with money, you need to be warned that the love of money is the root of all evil. Just, just straight out there, honest. It's that kind of dealing with reality that makes the Bible so believable in other places when its promises are given. We'll come back to that in a moment. So how does Paul describe life? How does Paul describe life? Well, in this text, he describes it in a couple of ways. He says, first of all, it's a fight. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. It's a word that encompasses an awful lot when you think of Paul's life. The idea, however, is simply something like this. In different degrees and with different specifics, there is a battle that is common to all Christians. There's a battle that's common to all. My brothers and sisters, 
I'm sorry to tell you this if you haven't noticed. Your life is a fight. Your life's a fight. Okay? Can I ask how many of you have ever spent a night uh, uh, um, shipwrecked in the ocean? How many of you are just really thankful that that's not part of your experience? You glad God delivered you from that one? Right? Like, that's one of the worst things I can think of. I would absolutely hate dangling above a mile of water on a piece of driftwood, you know, wondering what's down there, and thinking to myself, you know, at any moment, what I can't see might be there, right? <laughs> I just, it's not the way I want to go, it's just not, okay? But these are things that the Apostle Paul had dealt with during his lifetime. In fact, this is just a very incomplete list, an imperfect list, but let me just throw out a few things that the Apostle Paul says had been a part of the fight of his life. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, he talks about times when he had dealt with fears within. Now, you may never have, have, have been shipwrecked or drifting on a piece of driftwood in the ocean, or, but how many of you have felt fear? You've felt fear. Don't raise your hand. I would say that probably most of us have felt fear, but for some of us, fear is a fight that is specific to us. Some of us in this room, fear is an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing fight. Fear is a very real thing. Some of us experience occasional fear. Some of us live in a battle with fear a fear that attacks, that overwhelms. Paul, in his writing, refers to a long list of things that people have to battle with. We don't know always to what degree he battled with them, but he names fear specifically as something that he had to fight at certain times in his life. You say to yourself, Paul? Paul? He says we had fears within. Fears within. Philippians 4.6, we know this, this scripture well, but he refers to anxiety. Um, I don't know entirely what to make of this. I've been listening to some, some experts talk about this recently because in some respects, it feels like anxiety is has become a generational battle that didn't exist, at least not in the same way, 50 years ago. I did not grow up with people talking about anxiety as teenagers. Did not. Anxiety is everywhere now. Anxiety is everywhere now. Panic attacks. Anxiety is everywhere. We have fights that we fight in life. The Apostle Paul talks about fighting with temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Battling with temptation. Let's just get this out of the way. How many of you have temptations that you fight? The rest of you are liars. <laughs> I say that with all love. We all have a temptation that we fight. I say A as if it was one, okay? Some of us may have more than one. But temptation is a real battle that we fight in life. Some of them, some of the temptations that we fight are more obviously sinful. Some of them are more blatantly evil. Some of them are more, are more, um, easily disguisable, like self-righteousness. But there are temptations that we all face. There are temptations that we all deal with. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, the Apostle Paul talks about the battle that we have with our minds, the battles that we fight in our own minds, that you and I have thoughts that 
need to be taken captive, that need to be brought into subjection to the Lordship of Christ. My brothers and sisters, we fight wars in our minds. And can I just say it um, from someone who has fought his, some of his own battles in his own mind and still has some that he fights, that those battles can be exhausting. They can be really tiring to fight thoughts that intrude, that seem to just never quite want to go away, and that are, even when you would say that I have gained what you would say for your life is a measure of victory over them, you know that for you, that measure of, of victory is something that that um, that is that is a victory that's kind of on the edge. That given enough stress or enough of the wrong circumstances, that battle's going to come back at you, because it's it's a battle that's that's specific to who you are or to where you've been. And you realize, Lord, there's going to be some things I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight them to the end. I also happen to think that there are battles in our minds that we fight that are specific to the time of life we're living in. That maybe the battles that you fight in your mind when you're 50 or 60 or 70 are not the same battles that you fight when you're 20 or you're 30 or you're 40. But that but that we have an enemy that knows how to calibrate the attacks that he brings against us to the particular place and time that we live in our lives. Paul lists the battles in our minds. Then there's a, another whole list that he comes up with, in, in, uh, I'll just kind of give these in, in, uh, from, from, from Galatians. He talks about the fact that he dealt with personal attacks. Um, I've talked to people about, uh, uh, people that have commented to me about, well, Paul must have been some kind of self-absorbed person because he's always talking about how he's an apostle. He wasn't self-absorbed at all. He, he proclaimed his apostleship because he defended people that he had ministered to who had false teachers coming in, trying to lead them astray, telling them that Paul wasn't who they should be listening to. Paul only defended his, himself and his apostleship when he was protecting the flock that God had given him care for. Right? No, this charge against me isn't true. And I have to defend my apostleship, not for my reputation's sake, for your sake personal attacks that he had to deal with, and an interpersonal conflict that he had to deal with. This is one of those battles in life that we all face, interpersonal conflict, right? Dealing with the struggles that come between people. I put up there something very specific because it's another one that he addresses in Galatians 2, but I put in parentheses falsehood. In whatever form you deal with it, Right? That, that one of the things Paul dealt with was Judaism, and specifically in dealing with the Galatians, it was, man, I had established this church, and you guys were doing so well, and everybody was fellowshipping together, and everything was going well for you. And then this doctrine came in, and all of a sudden the church got divided into two camps, and people aren't fellowshipping together anymore. And even Peter got swayed by it and separated himself from the Gentiles. Paul says, I have to fight against this false doctrine. I have to battle this falsehood that would injure and destroy the church. Well, we could go on for the rest of the morning just listening, uh, listing the battles that the Apostle Paul uh, uh, shares in his letters. But this is an example. You and I fight, uh, these, are, these are examples, you and I fight battles in life. Life's a fight. Life's a fight. So this is one of those areas of acceptance that I think is really important. That um, if you live 
trying to get out of the fight, you're going to be troubled. You just have to accept a certain measure of it. It's what it is. There's going to be fight in life. There's going to be battles in life. The second way the Apostle Paul describes life is as a race, as a race. He says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've finished the course. That is a race, is what he's talking about. Now, thought about this a good bit. How many of you ever heard the, uh, the, the Billy Graham story when he was asked by a, re- a reporter what was the most surprising thing he had discovered about life? Does anybody remember his answer? Go ahead. You, you give the punchline. It was so short. Yeah. A reporter asked him, what's the most surprising thing that you have discovered about life? And his answer was that it's so short. It's so short. I didn't expect it to be so short. When the Apostle Paul talks about life as a race, I think it's useful to step back and recognize that the ways that we think about races uh, all have some things in common, but might be different depending on, on where you're living. That is, to a young life, life looks like a marathon that stretches out in front of them, and I've got time. I've got time. Please hear this. You don't have as much time as you think you have. You do not have as much time. The lie, I will get to it when I get to it, keeps us stuck in places that we should not stay. That God wants to say to us, deal with it now. Deal with it now. Right? But, but there's a sense in which to the young, life looks like a marathon with a long way to, the, to go. To the old, it looks like a sprint that's coming to an end. Looks like a sprint that's coming to an end. For us, maybe the temptation is to check out sooner than we should. To think that we've earned a season of fruitless existence. Rather than recognizing that while God gives us life, there's a way and a place and a time and an opportunity to serve. Right? That it's not over yet, so don't let it be over prematurely. Right? The idea of a race, however, that no matter how you look at it, whether you look at it as a sprint that's almost over, as a marathon that's just started, the fact of the matter is that a race is a contest that requires stamina and exertion and determination and discipline and practice. And the Apostle Paul has all these ideas wrapped up in this illustration that he's using. All of my life, I've pressed. There's been stamina. There's been exertion. There's been determination. I've disciplined myself. I beat my body and bring it into subjection. There's there's practice involved. And now I'm coming to the end of my course. It's a race. It's a race. Now, this last part of verse 7, I'll just touch on briefly. But what the Apostle Paul says is, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. The idea here is that the faith he had held had not failed him throughout his life. That is, I held on to something that sustained me all the way to the end. I I started off in the faith, I lived in the faith, I'm ending in the faith, and it has sustained me all through. But it also means that every battle had been in one sense or another an attack upon his faith and that he had held on to it because because there was one who held on to him. And please hear this. These two things always, always coexist. They they are true side by side. I'm not going to pretend to solve the mystery this morning, but I'm going to proclaim both. I thank God that there is one, Jude, Jude 24, that there is one who is able to keep me from falling. And he keeps me. But I have to say that I have to keep the faith as well. And the Apostle Paul said, I have kept the faith. And these two things happen side by side. 
that I'm able to keep, keep the faith because there is one who keeps me. And there is one who keeps me, but does not change the fact that I have to keep the faith. And these two things are both true. I've kept the faith. And please hear this. To keep the faith implies effort. It implies effort. Now I'm just going to pause here. I'm going to repeat something from Sunday school just real quickly. I want you to hear this. Um, Lots of us are expert in lots of things. You talk to some people about whatever. Uh, the illustration I used this morning in Sunday school was cars. You talk to a car guy, and they'll talk to you even when you don't know what they're talking about. They start talking about, well, you know, if you're the, 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 the manifold and, the, and you're just like, I'm sorry. I, I know that has significance and you know exactly, and I, it matters because every time I turn on my car, those things all have to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. But it's like your eyes just glaze over and in that moment you realize that someone is just talking and, and all you hear is wah, 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 wah. Right? It's like that cartoon, that cartoon Charlie Brown where the teacher's right? I'm sorry, I don't speak your language. Right? I don't know what you're talking about. But, but we're all expert in certain things. We know something about some things. My brothers and sisters, when Paul says, I have kept the faith, it implies that in order to, to live the kind of rounded, enduring faith life that keeps you to the end, it means you're going to have to put some effort into it. You can't be passive about your faith. You can't be passive about your faith. Please hear this. In your list of things that you have interest in, that you could give time to, you uh, if you're like me, my biggest problem in life is not finding things that I'm interested in. My biggest problem is narrowing it down to enough things that I can manage. My tendency is to be interested in enough things that I know a little bit about a lot of things. But not to become expert in every... Because I kind of go like this. Ooh, this interests me. And, oh, but I... I know a little bit about that now, and I want to, now I want to go over here. And I want to do, I'll do a little of astronomy, and I'll do a little of this, and I'll do a little of that, and I, and I tend to move like this. And, and to stop and ask myself, what can I really give myself to in life? How do I narrow? Please hear this. In most things, it's just a negotiating of how you use your time. But with your faith, your soul is at stake. Whatever your list is, your faith had better be on your list. you got to give some energy to this. And there's just no way around it. You starve spiritually, and, and you're going to struggle. And you're going to struggle in ways that will not be pleasant. Here's the fact. You're going to struggle in life no matter what. And faith is one of the few things you can invest in that can sustain you through that. Where the investment pays that kind of dividend. I might be interested in astronomy, but it won't sustain me when things get tough. It might distract me when things get tough, but it won't sustain me when things get tough. Your faith must be invested in. So, if I can just be as honest with you as I, as I know how, I think this is true. I might be wrong, but I think this is true, that there's something inherent in the fallenness of humanity that means that your faith takes more work to sustain than most other things do, and it erodes more significantly than other things would if you neglect them. Why? Because we have a bent towards sin. 
We have a bend that way. In other words, you might be able to go 40 days without food, but you go a week without God's word, you're going to be in trouble. Here's the most awful thing about it. Many people I know that are struggling in life don't realize that the reason they're struggling is because of how long they've neglected their faith. It's one of those things that doesn't, you don't make a natural connection to. My brothers and sisters, you must nourish your faith. That's not a legalistic statement. The fact of the matter is that to keep the faith is no different than keeping anything else. You've got to put some energy into it. It won't happen all by itself. You keep your faith. All right. Those are the realities of life. I will close quickly. Um, there we go. So let's talk about the reality of, of deliverance. Since we, we, we started this with deliverance, and we've spent a significant amount of time on the realities of life, let's just close with a reality of deliverance. Paul's statement in the beginning of, of 2 Timothy 4.18, where he says, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed, and then he proceeds to, to die a beheaded life, right? a, 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 beheaded, a beheaded death, right? He, he dies a martyr's death. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, it means at least two things. And, and these are outrageous promises that I ask you to hold on to, that I want to encourage you with. Coming out of Thanksgiving and heading into the Christmas season. I want to encourage you with these two things. Here's the first one. Please hear this. The reality of life is that much harm might befall you, but no true evil. No true evil. Now, that is an outrageous thing because in, if you just fill in the blanks of life circumstances, some really awful things happen to people. I mean really awful things happen to people. I mean awful things that change an entire course of life happen to people. The amazing thing is that when awful things happen to people, there are no guaranteed outcomes. These promises are things that must be held on to. They must be made yours. In other words, when those awful things happen, it, part of keeping the faith is to say, I'm going to hold on to the promise that God has made to me that there will be no evil deed that will ultimately triumph over me. I will be delivered from it. I will be delivered from it. Now you can fill in the blank. I don't care what the tragedy is. This past week, around the Thanksgiving table, we're all sitting around, we're having a conversation. Things turned serious. We got into a serious conversation. Part of the conversation was my brother and I were together and some of my kids were around and they were talking about how it is that my brother and I made it through my dad's death at the age of 18. Well, nobody wants to think about the death of a parent when you're 18 years old. My brother was 16. My sister was six. Nobody wants to think about that. That's not something you look forward to. That's something that if you said to yourself right now, a a child 18 or under, you thought, what would happen if my mom or dad died? The natural thought is, "I I can't deal with that. Please hear this. If this statement is true, here's what it means. It means you might suffer that harm and God will deliver you from it. He will bring you through it. It doesn't doesn't happen. And for some of us, it takes longer than others. Some of us struggle more than others. But please hear this. What we hold on to is God will keep me through this. God will keep me through this. He will deliver me from the evil that intends to destroy me in this. 
I can't deny the fact that I face harm in life, but I can hold on to the promise that the harm doesn't have to destroy me. That God can deliver me from the evil. God will deliver me from the evil. It's a promise so outrageous that it would be unbelievable if it was not said in a book that was so honest and real as Scripture is. Please hear this. God puts himself on the hook for this. God puts himself on the hook for this. I got to tell you, quite honestly, sometimes, sometimes you're just going to have to find the right person or the right people to help you through this that reminds you of what God has said. I'm not saying that you do it all by yourself, but I'm telling you this, God setting you in his family, placing resources around you and within you by his spirit and through his word intends to bring you through whatever harm comes your way. And he's able to bring you through it. He's able to bring you through it. We feel much suffering and we experience much harm. But the idea is that you and I are delivered from true evil, which is an ultimate destruction. Which is an ultimate destruction. It's another way of saying that we have a God who works all things together for our good. We have a God who works all things together for our good. All things are not good. In fact, some of us have been touched by what can only be described as pure evil. It was evil what was done. In that moment, Satan has a will for your life and God has a will for your life. And you need to know that keeping the faith is something that will end in you being able to give a testimony that God delivered you through the evil into a place in which there was a redemptive story that came. It's a promise. It's a promise that he gives to us. He will bring us through and there will be ultimate good rather than ultimate destruction. Now, I... I'm not excited about saying, I mean, I, I can't say that because it's really not true. I acknowledge that when we pray for deliverance, we're not necessarily praying this way. But the older I get, the more confident I get praying this way. The fact of the matter is, part of what Paul intends to say here is that death is an ultimate deliverance. Death is an ultimate deliverance. I remember hearing the story once of a lady who was in the hospital, advanced years, near death, and family members kept coming in and laying hands on her and praying for her. And finally, after an extended amount of time, uh, a family member came in and she looked at him and said, please stop praying for me to live. I'm afraid if you keep asking, God will give you what you're asking for. And that's not what I want anymore. Now please hear this. That is not necessarily an unspiritual thing to say. Prematurely, it would be. But there comes a time like this in the Apostle Paul's life when he's able to say, I know that my course is done. And I'm good with that. Death holds no terrors for me. In fact, death is the deliverance from the struggle and the fight and the race and the, and the keeping of the faith. It is the crowning moment of my life. And for me to go and be with Christ is gain. I don't want to be held back anymore. I don't want to be held back anymore. You know what I've started praying? I've started praying, so listen, if you don't want me to pray for your loved ones anymore, because I'm going to tell you what I'm going to pray right now, and then if you don't want me to pray that, I won't pray it anymore, because <laughs> I won't know, okay? But here's what I've started praying. Lord, heal them. Restore them to usefulness, to fruitfulness, to a, a life that they would live in your service. Or take them home to glory. 
the Lord deliver them from suffering. That's how I've prayed. God, you and you alone have the wisdom to decide between those two things. You've told me to make my requests known, so here's my request. But God, if you're going to bring them out of this, I mean bring them out of it. Bring them out for their sake. Bring them to a place of fruitfulness and usefulness, to a quality of life that they would want to live. Or God, just take them home to be with you. My brothers and sisters, it is not an ungodly prayer to recognize there is a life that's coming and it's better than this one. It's better. It's better. Sometimes I'm afraid that the prayers that we pray are too selfish. They are prayers for our own desires and not necessarily the desires of the person we're praying for. Deliverance. Deliverance. There is a deliverance in death. It's not a cop-out. It's simply a promise of the life to come. It's a promise of the life to come. So here's what I close with. Here's how Paul describes his ultimate deliverance. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown. Now, this is the place where I send chills up my own spine and I want to get up and walk around and, and get in your face. And it's just, it's just for some reason, it seems to be me. I, I, I'm not going to tell you about it right now. I think there's some downsides to this that Satan has used very powerfully at times in my life. But I want you to hear this. I used to, I used to dream about the second coming of Christ as a child. I would stand, I was, I, I, I was in a third grade house. I can still see the dream. It was, a re, it was a recurring dream over and over again. I'm standing in a field across the street that I used to watch Spanish ladies pick snails from. I'm standing in that field and the storm clouds are just rolling over overhead. The sky is just boiling over. There's, there's clouds, there's, there's a brilliant sun setting that's trying to break through the clouds, and there's, there's this wind that's hitting me, and as I'm standing in this field, I turn around, I look back to my house, and as I look back at my house, my mom, my dad, and my brother walk out the door, and all of a sudden, we all start going up. That's where my dream would end. All I can tell you is I've had an obsession with heaven since I was little. It's probably the only thing I can tell you that has come to me naturally in the spiritual life in my life. Most everything else has been a fight. But I've had a love for heaven that I can only attribute to God. There's been all of these things that have revolved around it. The questions that I would ask my dad almost always revolved around the second coming and heaven. Because somehow inside of me, I couldn't put it into these words, but what I've come to realize is every desire that I have ever had, even the sinful ones, were just misunderstood longings for something that will be fulfilled in heaven someday. All of them. My most sinful moments have been driven by passions and desires that Satan has twisted that God gave me to long for heaven and that he's going to fulfill someday. He's going to. Paul says, there's a crown. There's a reward that is coming my way. That's why no evil deed will ever have the last word, I will be delivered. You go back to verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. That's the ultimate deliverance. There's a crown. There's a reward that's available to us all. The escape of evil equals, verse 18, the entrance into his kingdom. It's the entrance into his kingdom. It's stepping into glory. In Romans, Paul wrote, 
that the sufferings that we experience now are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us someday. They're not worthy to be compared. My brothers and sisters, this idea of deliverance is a very real thing. And as we, as we, as we move in this time of year, I, I, I don't believe it's a bad thing to just acknowledge the rhythms that we live within, some of which just come to us. This holiday season, as we refer to it, Thanksgiving, Christmas, as we think about what it is to give thanks, and as we think about what it is to move toward this, this remembrance of Christ's birth as misplaced on the calendar as it is. The idea of, of intertwining the realities of life, the difficulties of life, with let us be thankful, for there is one who came for us, and who came to give his life for us, and who gave his life for us that he might come again for us. These themes that, that come back to us in this time of year, they can be summed up in this promise that there was a deliverer sent to us. And he is going to deliver us. He is going to deliver us. In life, we get the deliverance through suffering. And when this life is done, whether it be by death or by the second coming, he's going to deliver us from the presence of evil. We're going to be delivered. We're going to be delivered. And as God's people, that's a reason to celebrate. I want you to have hope in your heart. I want you to have joy in your heart this season. Whatever it is you deal with, whatever it is you're going through, remember that you serve a delivering Savior. You serve a delivering God. He will deliver you from every evil deed. One way or the other, He will deliver you. Through it, He will deliver you from it. He's a God, he's a God of deliverance. I'm going to ask you to bow with me and to pray. And I'd like us to ask that the Lord would help us to center our hearts on this truth in this season. That we would remember, celebrate the deliverance that our Lord Jesus came to bring. That he has made possible for us through his cross. Our Savior, we come to you admitting openly that in this life there are battles that we fight, that the race is often strenuous, and that we experience harm. Those are realities to be uh, acknowledged. We see here a promise of deliverance. And we choose to hold on to that today. Lord, we choose to hold on to it not as a delusion, but as a clinging to a truth that you have spoken to us, a hope that we have that is ours because of Christ. Lord, I want to thank you that there is one who tasted death for us. That there is one who, who walked through what it was to be forsaken by God so that we would never be forsaken. That there is one who paid a penalty so that that penalty would not be enacted against us. Who holds out the guarantee to us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so Lord, in... What feels to me anyways like a heavy life. It feels like the world we're living in is a messaging that is destined to have a constant weighing on our hearts with the gravity of the issues of our day. Not to mention the fact of the things that come into our own lives that we experience. Lord, we... We, I pray that we, as your people, would choose today to set our hearts and minds on things above and not on things below.
but to rather focus on the power and the truth of the deliverer who came for us. Who, who came to free us from sin and from death. Who came to, to silence evil and to not allow it to have the final word in our lives. That even when we must go through it, there's a promise of good that comes from it. And that ultimately, we will be taken from the presence of all evil and that one day we will dwell with you forevermore in that bright and holy place that will never again be marked by the ugliness of sin and darkness and evil. We thank you for it. We thank you for it. We embrace that truth today. We celebrate it today. Lord, I pray that in this truth you would comfort our hearts, that you would be with those who walk difficult roads today, and that you would strengthen those of us that, that maybe uh, are not in those difficult places, but for whom a difficult place might come. Pray that you would strengthen and sustain your people. Thank you for being the God who redeems, the God who delivers. We thank you for that. We welcome it. We invite that reality into our lives. Help us to stand on your promise and keep the faith. Keep the faith. Lord, encourage your people's hearts today. I ask that this theme would stay present with us as we celebrate this season, as we rejoice. Lord, may our attentions be continually drawn to the Deliverer who gave himself for us. Thank you for this hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And the Lord 